Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Tatecast. I'm Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by Laura Shin, who is a prominent crypto blockchain journalist. She is the host of the very popular Unchained podcast, but most importantly for our conversation today, she is the author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency craze. It's essentially a history, uh, a minute-by-minute detailing of the Ethereum blockchain. It is a fantastic read. There is a link to purchase it in the description of the show, and I would encourage everyone to do that. I really enjoyed talking to Ms. Shin, and I think that you guys will enjoy the conversation as well. If you want to support this show, you can subscribe to bonus episodes on patreon.com slash Tatecast or just leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's go ahead and get into the show. All right, everyone. Uh, Very pleased, very excited to bring in Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians, to the show. Uh, It's a book that just came out, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the making of the first big cryptocurrency trade. A link to purchase the book will be in the description. I know some of you have already purchased it. It's sitting right here next to me on my desk. And um, thank you very much for joining the show. I'm really excited to talk about the book. Thanks for having me. And just one quick note, it's cryptocurrency craze, not trade. Oh, uh, <laughs> there we go. Of course, that's, uh, that, that, that's my bad. That belies, that belies my... Uh, that belies my intentions. Um, so, of, of course, we always have to begin. These are these are some of my favorite stories. When did you first hear about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? I mean, maybe you knew about about Bitgold or whatever. And and I'm uh, and I'm behind the times. Who who do you remember your first experience hearing about cryptocurrency in general? I do, and it was kind of funny because the way the person described it to me, I thought that. Bitcoin was like some kind of video game where people basically did math problems. And I just, maybe this reveals something about my age, but I was just picturing somebody at their desk with pen and paper or pencil, I guess, and paper <laughs> working out the the answer to these math problems and then winning these kind of what I thought of as like video game coins. And this explanation uh, was given to me in 2011 when there was much less consciousness about Bitcoin and digital currency. So that is what I thought for a very, very long time. 
You know, um, and then, yeah, it wasn't until 2015 when I started covering Bitcoin and crypto more seriously. And yeah, so, and then pretty much ever since then, I've been very obsessed with it and have covered it almost exclusively since then. We actually sort of have uh, a little bit of that in common because you got at least part of your degree was in literature. Mine, mine was as well. And I, I kind of had I kind of had the same sort of reaction when I, I I wasn't picturing a pen and paper, but I was basically picturing like a like exactly what you were saying, like a computer game that got rewarded out. I and in fact, for like years, I and to be honest, I don't know if I could still give the perfect answer for how and why the mining rewards you. It is like that that part remains very opaque to me. Oh, well, do you want me to explain it? <laughs> I mean, do, please do your best. Like the the mi the mining block rewards and who gets the reward. Um, still, yeah, please, please enlighten me. Yeah. So the Bitcoin network, um, or 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 I should say, the Bitcoin blockchain uh, is determined by who has the majority of the power on the network. Right. So yeah. So the the amount of computing power on the network is really important for security. And so the Bitcoin mining process basically incentivizes people to add their computer power to the network, which therefore gives the network more security. However, from the side of the miner, what they think they're doing is they think that they're entering themselves into this competition that occurs every 10 minutes. To yeah, it's win, like a raffle kind of. Yeah, to win the new... Uh, coins being minted by the software. And what happens is that um, this little competition is just a bunch of computers racing to figure out a math problem. And whoever figures out the answer first gets to add the latest block of transactions to the blockchain and propagate um, the, you know, the transactions in that block out to the rest of the network. So um, you know, from the side of the miner, as I said, it feels like, ooh, chance to win free money. But from the side of Bitcoin, it's like, ooh, I am getting security for the network. Yeah, the 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 chain itself pays the miner to verify the transactions and and to keep the ledger. I mean, all of that that part is that is understandable to me. Like I the, the concept oh, okay. of a blockchain, of course. Like I I get all that. The the part that. I, I guess I guess maybe because I haven't been like nerdy enough to go watch in and see a block get mined off is like so it happens every ten minutes and I guess it's because all of these mining corporations are essentially running the same thing like they're all using the same machines right um, no there there are different miners but it is true yeah there are certain companies that dominate and so yeah I think. The majority of the network and and granted i have not looked into this recently but right. in the past it's been that yeah certain machines will dominate because they're frankly better yeah all right well education aside we can go ahead and and get into <laughs> and we can get into the book and for for people listening we are definitely going to touch on some things in the book but there are fairly large spoilers that i in writing up these questions tried to avoid because i want everyone to buy and to read the book so we're going to begin with uh, what has kind of been called Game of Thrones Day inside of Ethereum. So no spoilers, but I think we're seeing the micro conflict, which really happens in this book, detailing um, everything that was going on between the venture capitalists and the coders with Ethereum. And we're seeing this really play out at a macro scale right now, I think, between 
money men, venture capitalists, web web 2.0 people, and and even governments are a crypto and blockchain stuff is more at the forefront right now than it's ever been in in my memory. So my question is, how do you see that micro conflict of this is the best thing to make money versus the code is what's most important, the blockchain is what's most important, decentralization is most important, playing out on this much larger, grander scale? So um, this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler, but we won't go into too many details. Honestly, actually, this event has been covered previously, so it wasn't like new material in my book, so people may already know, but... As you mentioned, there was an event that people now refer to as the Game of Thrones Day in Ethereum. (laughs) And what essentially happened is that early on when Vitalik Buterin had the idea for Ethereum, a bunch of people joined him to say, hey, we'll be co-founders. And within the first few months, it became apparent that there was a, a kind of rift happening within the group. And essentially, the divide was between what people called the the devs or developers and the business guys. And if you think about kind of like what has been happening over the last few decades with the advent of the internet and like all the development of this technology, a lot of the power in our culture and society has shifted from Wall Street and finance over to Silicon Valley and tech. And what you know what that initial kind of revolution looked like was that a lot of the what were formerly startups um like google and facebook etc became and amazon became you know these huge tech giants and their business model was that the users would give their data to these companies and then those companies would profit from like advertising based off that data And these developers um, in Ethereum, as they kind of started building it, there were conflicts over what the vision of Ethereum should be. And a number of the business guys really wanted to follow that model that a lot of these tech giants had followed. And the devs were very much kind of these more slightly cypherpunk types who, you know, they were really into open source technology and they didn't want to build something for corporations. They wanted to build something more like Bitcoin, which was decentralized and didn't have a company at the center that was running it, but was instead this open decentralized network. And it was based off open source software. And so their idea was that that's what Ethereum should be. And all of this basically came to a head in what was, you know, is now called the Game of Thrones Day. I mean, there were a lot of other issues at play, just definitely a lot of interpersonal issues as well, which people will read about. A lot of people are calling my book juicy and spicy because definitely this early group of people, they did not all love each other. Let's put it that way. For sure. Um, it is it is juicy and spicy. I will promise that to the people. If you really like crypto, it'll be very juicy and spicy. Yes. So anyway, uh, that is basically kind of what the early um, conflict was about. But I would say that actually in my seven years covering crypto, I feel like I'm seeing that over and over again. You know, I mean, kind of the latest iteration is um, when new coins launch, people will be kind of 
um, maybe irritated or upset if there are VCs involved. And you see a lot of criticism of what people call VC coins versus so-called fair launch coins, which are ones that are just launched without having any quote unquote pre-mined coins or coins that have already been minted and allocated out to early investors and other early creators. And so, you know, this, this debate uh, just has been ongoing for years, but my personal take is that the crypto revolution is one in which we're seeing developers take power from business people. And frankly, throughout the book, you'll see that the devs, they're just kind of always in control. The, which is which is good, right? I mean, I, well, I guess depending depending on your perspective, it would yeah, be maybe, good. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if the business people would think that was good, but but it is what happened. <laughs> so so I guess that is. I mean, that's another interesting point. Again, considering where I mean, literally just this week, you know, we we saw a huge transaction in the crypto space with Yuga Labs, um, you know, buying out Larva Labs and and all that. I guess that's a little bit more NFT stuff, but the there's clearly so much money to be made right now in the cryptocurrency space and i mean how is the business like fight the the financial world cannot feel happy about turning over or or missing out on all of this earning potential because of you know these devs have this this cypherpunk ethic that they've stuck to for so long like i think that is and again you know i don't have any answers but i feel like that is a very interesting thing that is going to have to be mapped out over, I mean, even the next like 12 to 18 months. No, no, I, I would definitely not say that the business people have not been making money in crypto. Well, that's I mean, true too. So many people have, like I've been covering this space for almost seven years now and people that started off just like as a normal person like me, now they're buying homes that are worth like more than hundred million dollars. <laughs> right. So, you know, and, and, and some of them are business people. So, I mean, so many people I know have made so much money in crypto. It is just crazy. And especially if they were business people before getting into crypto and had money to start with, then they were able to buy a lot of coins at a very cheap price. And they're billionaires today. They're multi-billionaires. So yeah, no, I wouldn't say that they're not making money. I mean, I think the thing about crypto is that it basically uh, turned, I, so what I, I've been calling, and, and I'm sure one of my sources gave this to me, um, but it was so long ago that I don't remember who, um, but a lot of people call blockchains, you wait, what a uh, user owner, like, sorry, user owned networks, meaning that yeah. the users are user owners. Because in order to use a network or a blockchain, you need to own the token. And so if you're owning the token, but also using the network, then you're a user owner. And this is actually why I, like, I have this whole thesis about, and, and I'm already starting to see it play out. So I gave this TEDx talk in 2018, where I talked about how I feel like crypto is going to lead to more people becoming their own bosses. And it's so funny because today on my show, I released an episode with somebody who calls herself a Web3 freelancer. And basically the way she makes her living is she works for DAOs. That's literally it. And, yeah. and it's very fascinating. I was asking her you know, about how she gets compensated and how her compens compensation is decided. And she was saying things like, okay, so for one of them where she's a core researcher, like meaning on the core team, she's paid via a W-2 because she's, you know, like 
kind of really a part of that, of, you know, the, the main work that they're doing. But then for another one where her work is kind of more tangential and it's like kind of a freelance type thing, she gets paid in tokens. And not only does she get paid in tokens, but the amount that she earns is essentially decided by her peers. <laughs> and it used to be that there was a like committee. That's her, her payment is part of the DAO, like, like the governor's yeah. token. That's so fascinating. Yeah, exactly. So it's for Index Co-op, which is a a DAO that um, I think it's it's like some kind of financial thing they're trying to do like, um, yeah, like indexed investments or something. I'm like blanking on the the purpose of that DAO. But but anyway, um, the point is that she was saying that initially there was a committee that decided everybody's compensation. And if you didn't agree with what they allocated to you, you could appeal. But then she said, now they use this tool called Coordinate. And Coordinate is literally just like a payroll thing for DAOs. And essentially people, you know, they kind of interact with each other as they're working together. And what will happen is that the people that you work with will kind of like say how much they think you contributed. And then at the end, that determines what your pay is. <laughs> so this whole thing is like just incredibly fascinating to me. But um, all I was trying to say is like, yeah, it's definitely not a model where you have these centralized companies and they're, you know, they have a C-suite and a board and then they hire all these different roles in these different departments. It's not like that at all. It's very fluid. And um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just so different. So anyway, it's just very fascinating. But I do think that we are seeing a shift in how people organize themselves. I certainly think, I mean, I certainly think we are seeing that shift. Um, you know, uh, I, I've had a guy on this show before, uh, Andy from Fractional, who has talked, you know, a little bit about that. Like, it's just a much different way of running a company. And there are lots of, um, well, there are open sea competitors out there in the NFT space who are trying to incentivize people to, you know, own the tokens of that network to participate in their marketplace. And, and you know, kind of one of the, the big differences between, web two and web three is instead of paying with your data you're paying via participation which i, I mean i view as as a huge win right i mean it, i i at least i think it is mm -hmm. yeah i agree i i mean i yeah i think what's so fascinating about what she described is it just seems very fluid to me right like if you stop contributing then you're you're not gonna get paid right right yeah, because it's sort of this, um, especially for that one I described where she's getting paid in tokens. I mean, for the other ones where she's paid via a W-2 and a 1099, you know, that's just like US dollars and it's more of a normal thing where they negotiated a fee up front and then she's just earning that. But for the other one where it's based off of how much you're contributing and it's kind of this continuous um, evaluation, you know, she she has to keep, keep working. So I, I just find the whole thing very fascinating. So we were we were talking a little bit about how the book is spicy and several of the people discussed in the book, you know, they said, said publicly they're unhappy with the portrayals of themselves, but they were all given a chance to be a source. Right. And so as as a journalist, uh, I'm sort of just wondering, you know, how frustrating is that to, to, try, to try to contact someone, you know, multiple times that you need for the book? And of course, they don't respond until it's too late or until the portrayal that they didn't want is already out there. I mean, that's just got to be very frustrating as an author. Um, I mean, so so I think there's only one person that uh, kind of indicated they were unhappy with their portrayal. 
uh, that person, um, I think it's, I don't know if they're unhappy with their portrayal. I think they're unhappy maybe that the truth is getting revealed about them. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, which yeah. is a different hundred percent, I understand, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, um, so, so for people who, uh, I mean, this is all public, so I'm just gonna just mention oh, it. But by all means. Yeah, so there's somebody who was an Ethereum co-founder named Charles Hoskinson, and he has created another new blockchain called Cardano, and he gave me one interview, um, but then when I tried to do follow-ups, he did not respond. And well, actually, they they said they were going to come to one, do one interview with me, but then nobody showed up, even though multiple people were supposed to be on this call. And then I sent like three or four emails about that, being like, hey, you know, nobody showed up, let's reschedule, no response. And then so finally, I sent the fact-checking. And again, I sent like three or four emails about that. Uh, my fact-checker also reached out, no response. And so, you know, at that point, when you're you're uh, emailing the entire press team, plus the global head of media relations, plus Charles's assistant, like this is a collective decision not to participate. And so I actually am not quote unquote frustrated as you said sure. um, in your question, because I just feel like, okay, so he made a choice. Um, and then, you know, I think it's like disingenuous for him to, then criticize my book since he chose not to have his point of view represented. And, you know, I think he probably knew like, oh, okay, so I have been saying all these things. And now this journalist went and figured out what the actual facts are. And so I'm not going to look very good. And so I have a feeling that maybe that's what the reason was for that. You know, I, I, right. I can't, I'm just speculating here. I don't actually know, but that would be my guess. Um, and so, you know, I mean, like he has been saying to multiple different outlets, as he said in my interview that he, uh, he said that he dropped out of grad school. And I said, what kind of grad school, master's or PhD? He said, PhD. The schools I contacted said that he was enrolled as an undergrad. And, um, you know, he told one of a, a different crypto outlet that he had dropped out of doing a PhD at one of those schools. And that school was like, no, he was enrolled as an undergrad and dropped out as an undergrad. So, um, you know, unless he wants to tell us which school he was enrolled uh, at as a PhD student, so I can fact check that. Like, I have a feeling he just was caught in a fib, right? And, right. Um, you know, I personally don't care about his schooling. I don't think anybody does. Um, apparently he does to the point where he felt the need to, you know, potentially lie about it. Um, but the point is, that I don't feel frustrated. I just feel like, okay, you know, my job was to make my book as accurate as I could. And I tried really hard to get his perspective. He and his whole team decided not to have their perspective included. So, you know, that's their choice. And so I wrote my book, you know, without that. Um, I, I'm sure you're very well aware because you are reading the book right now that um, there are many people who had negative things that were said about them. And if I mentioned that in the book, then I would always go to them to have their side included. And so their response is often included. Um, and those are the people who, you know, chose to participate. And I personally think that that's the better way to go. I think that those people are probably happy that their side is included. That's just my guess. Um, you know, for, so for that one person, Charles, who chose not to do that, um, you know, then, then he goes around on Twitter saying that my book is a fiction, um, even though he was given ample opportunity to correct the record if he saw anything incorrect in it. So, 
anyway, so no, I'm not frustrated. I feel like I did my best effort and I, you know, kind of dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's in terms of process. And I don't think anybody would say that I was at fault. Uh, you know, if, if there's anything inaccurate around the Charles story, which at the moment I haven't found any evidence that there is. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it seems that it seems that the only people that uh, that would take offense are are the the guy in question or people who have gigantic um, Cardano bags, which is, I mean, we you know we do we see lots of that on um, on social media right now in crypto where people just get so dug in on on whatever on whatever their bag happens to be, which uh, I, I assume as a crypto journalist and the host of, I mean, probably the the biggest cryptocurrency podcast. I mean, you get you you get to you get to see lots of that, the people who are extremely dug in on their cryptocurrency of choice. Yeah. Yeah. As I'm sure you're well aware, a lot of people say that crypto is very tribal and religious. And I would agree that it is. Um and yet despite all the kind of um <laughs> sort of um, unreasonable things that happen in this space. The truth is I just love covering it as a journalist and I don't let these things bother me. So that, uh, that, that, I mean, that leads us to an interesting question then, which is the, um, the sort of the general view on these Ethereum rivals, right? Uh, these, these smart contract platforms that purport to be faster, um, smarter, you know, whatever, because I, I think there is at least a general acceptance. I mean, some some people would not accept this that nothing else is able to do what Bitcoin does, and then you know the non-stable coins, so non non-tether USDC, etc., smart contract cryptos are kind of trying to do what Ethereum can do already, but with without the network effects. Right, Ethereum has been around longer. Vitalik has an outsized influence compared to some of these other founders. Um, there there is still a lot of VC money in Cardano, but not, not the same, or not Cardano, Ethereum, but less than there would be with something like Solano. So these, these, you know, purported Ethereum rivals, I mean, what do you, what do you make of, of the evolution of these tokens? I mean, is there, is there a future where Web3 runs on Solana or, you know, some, some currency that doesn't exist yet? Or do you, do you feel that Ethereum has sort of cemented itself as that platform? Oh, over the long term, you know, all bets are off. I mean, sure. for sure, at the moment, Ethereum and Bitcoin are the only two that have established themselves in any way. I mean, there's really just no question about it. You know, Bitcoin is far and away the most widely recognized crypto. It has the greatest adoption. It's the most liquid. I mean, there's just, you know, it, it just, there's no comparison. And same with Ethereum when it comes to smart contract platforms, you know, the sheer number of new developers that it draws to it for new developers coming into crypto, 20% of them work in Ethereum. <laughs> there is no blockchain that comes even close to that, even Bitcoin. I mean, the number of, of developers working in Ethereum, I think is like four times greater than the second largest developer community. So there is just absolutely no question that Ethereum really dominates when it term when it comes to attracting developers in crypto. So, you know, for those two, I just feel like at least for the next few years, it's really their game to lose, you know. And uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen over the long term? I mean, you know, I've lived through the internet revolution and I remember early on AOL completely dominated. 
And, you know, everybody got onto the internet via AOL. Nowadays, if somebody emails you from an AOL address, like it's kind of weird and makes them look a little bit odd, right? So that's why I say all bets are off. You know, I'm open to anything happening in crypto. I try really hard as a journalist to not have super fixed ideas around, you know, what I think should happen or will happen and to just remain open to kind of whatever the story might end up being, because, you know, I don't want to just be so fixed in my opinions that I end up missing what the story is. So, you know, as a journalist, I just need to be prepared to kind of follow quickly, whatever the story ends up being. Well, that, I mean, keeping an open mind in crypto, it's like sort of, I, I would say that, I mean, it's a huge hack and also it's something that not a lot of people do, uh, you know, the expect, I mean, really like last 18 months or so we've seen the, you know, the, the dot ETH people, uh, of which I am one, not because I'm a huge Ethereum maxi, but just cause I love the idea of owning, um, an ENS domain and that, you know, the laser eyes, Twitter, uh, you know, Michael Saylor and, and, uh, you know, all, all of those people. And, um, I mean, you, you've had the ability to, to experience that as a journalist. I mean, how have you seen these threads develop of these, of these tribal camps? Cause you know, when in pre 2017, pre ICO stuff, I really don't remember the space being so tribal, like Bitcoin people would kind of mess around with whatever was happening on Ethereum. All the Ethereum people were like, oh yeah, you know, we, we either came from Bitcoin or we're interested in Bitcoin. You know, we, we wrote for Bitcoin magazine or whatever, you know, things like that. Sorry. No, I disagree with that. You do. Okay. Well, I I mean, you would know, you would know more than me. Well, I mean, do you remember the block size wars from 2015 to 2017 through 2017? I, I do. I remember. Um, so I, I read that. I read the book and, you know, Roger Ver and I haven't read the book and uh, I read it like six or seven months ago because Alex Gladstein um, recommended it to me. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I do. I do remember the block size wars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I personally, my personal take is that crypto has always been very tribal. And um, if you, I'm just trying to think. So in my book, I also have some different blog posts and Bitcoin talk threads that were being written around the time. I think it was when Ethereum was being built. So after the crowd sale, but before the launch and people were basically trying to, um, you know, throw FUD at Ethereum, like fear, uncertainty, a doubt. Yeah. So, or so FUD about Ethereum Um, and kind of, you know, like hilariously, one of the criticisms, this of course, like I said, was before the network launch (laughs) was that Ethereum claims to have smart contracts, but this is a lie. It's not going to have smart contracts. You know, that's ridiculous. And like, of course it's, you know, it definitely launched with smart contracts and it's had them for a while and, you know, they're all still going. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's a funny thing. I mean, you know, people, yeah, they, they get wedded to their coin. And then for some of them, they feel then compelled to, um, throw FUD at the other coins. Yeah, or, or uh, you know, only only eat meat, no vegetables, right? I mean, I'll just uh, the 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 Bitcoin like, and I love Bitcoin. I I always have and always will. But the Bitcoin people absolutely crack me up. I mean, it's all it's all it's all so funny to me. So this is that's actually a great seg for what uh, what I think is, um, I mean, just it's kind of an unanswerable question. But so two questions: one, 
would you define Ethereum as decentralized? And two, what do you think Vitalik would answer to that question? I think it's decentralized and I'm pretty sure Vitalik would definitely say so. <laughs> well, Vitalik would definitely, I completely agree with you. Vitalik <laughs> would say so. Um, yeah, I mean, so from my perspective, uh, you know, you, you'll, people will read in the book that definitely um, a lot of people in Ethereum do look to Vitalik for leadership. Not that he's super willing to give it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, but I sort of feel like, okay, so he has kind of, you know, a large voice and a big influence at the foundation. But I, I don't know if I would necessarily say that if the foundation went away, that suddenly Ethereum would fail. You know, there might be this period of kind of kind of reorganization and like questions about how it was going to be led. But there are too many people invested in Ethereum at this point. And so I'm pretty sure they would just self-organize and they would be like, okay, you know, these different teams are going to handle the, you know, the Geth client and, you know, the parody client and what, you know, they would sort of figure all that out. And like, this team will handle the merge and they're, they're just going to like, you know, kind of recreate their own version of the Ethereum foundation, essentially in some manner, probably using smart contracts, you know, um, using like DAO technology. So I just, I, like I said, there are too many people invested in it. So no, I don't think that if Vitalik or the foundation went away, that suddenly Ethereum would fail. So what about the distribution of nodes for Ethereum? So, and let, I mean, again, I could always be wrong because crypto is a huge space and there's a lot to learn. But the way I understand it is that to, to properly run an Ethereum node, you need to have at least 32 Ethereum, which there are enough people in the world with 32 Ethereum to have that be decentralized enough. Um, then this, this proposed switch to proof of stake would, to my understanding, alter that to some degree. Uh, would, would I, and I don't know if that would cause the nodes to be more or less spread out, but that is, that is one of the criticisms of Ethereum's centralization or, or lack thereof. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I've done a lot of research in this, but sure, yeah. I also feel like a lot of people have said about Bitcoin for the longest time that it only takes a handful of pools to have more than 51% power on the network. So I, I feel yeah. like it's probably a similar criticism. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of feel like if it's Bitcoin people that are making that criticism, then it's kind of the same criticism that a lot of people throw at Bitcoin too. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the, so the funniest thing about, about the Bitcoin versus Ethereum stuff is that the Ethereum FUD from the Bitcoiners just sounds a lot like no coiner FUD about Bitcoin to me, at least. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't pay attention to all that stuff too much. Actually, I have to admit it's very, it's very good. It it's very like good noise. for your mental health. It's very yeah, it good for your like mental noise. health. Yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't. Yeah, because the basic facts are that Ethereum has been hugely successful and Bitcoin has been hugely successful. And in my opinion, I mean, you know, granted, I'm a journalist, but as far as I can tell from my coverage, they're just different. They don't even compete. They have like different niches. They have different use cases. They have different people that work on them. Like I personally just don't even see them as super competitive. I just see them as different. I, I actually completely agree with you. And I don't know how common of an opinion that is, but the, the things that 
Ethereum developers are building, the things that people are are using Ethereum for, right? Um, you know, because that's always a criticism of of cryptocurrency in general from from no coiners or from its opponents is you just you'd say, oh, you can't do anything with it. And like obviously there are all these things you can do with Ethereum and Bitcoin also has, you know, it's it's real world use cases right now. People are using Bitcoin every day. People are using Ethereum every day and they're doing it for totally different reasons and different purposes. Like I, I don't know how many, uh, I, I don't know if like a defense of Ethereum would be like, oh, this is super hard sound money that should replace like a world currency. Like, I don't, I don't think there are people really advocating for that. Oh that no, but what, there are. You haven't oh. heard about the ultrasound money people? <laughs> I, I've heard about the ultrasound money Bitcoin people, but not. I didn't know there was a, an ultrasound Ethereum. People oh, movement. oh, oh, oh. Okay. Well, please did, fill so me did in. You, <laughs> did you follow the um, EIP one five five nine adoption and how that was going to change the monetary policy of Ethereum? Yes. Yeah. So, oh, okay. so you know, it's it's moved to a you know at least semi deflationary. Like I remember the first deflationary block being a big deal. Yeah. So the architect of that, Justin Drake, is also a Bitcoiner, and yet he now works at the Ethereum Foundation. And he um, basically, I think, well, I, I don't know if he's the main architect of that. I, I should maybe check that, but he's definitely um, a very vocal proponent. You know, he came on my show to kind of describe that system. And so he is saying that since once the merge happens, Ethereum will likely be kind of constantly deflationary while Bitcoin will still be inflationary for another roughly 120 years, that then Ethereum will be ultrasound money in an even uh, stronger way than Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are um, you know, I, there are arguments that I find very, I mean, also part of my problem is I'm very impressionable when it comes, like when very smart people are talking to me about something they're passionate about. Like I can listen to a really smart person explain why Bitcoin is the greatest thing since sliced bread and be like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. <laughs> and then hear a, an incredibly intelligent Ethereum developer talk about why Ethereum is going to change the world. And I'm like, oh yeah, of course it would. Why, why wouldn't it? Um, so, and there are, you know, very convincing arguments that having something that is a little bit more malleable is good right uh and i mean that you know but then the the con the contrary to that would be things that are malleable can be taken advantage of by the people who are doing you know the mallying uh, i suppose which is you know i mean which is why i don't have an allegiance to either one over the other and i just find it all very fascinating yeah yeah um but yeah you should visit shoot what is the website it's ultrasound money dot is it dot com or dot eth or what is it ultrasound oh, ultrasound dot money ultrasound dot money yes and this website tracks the amount of ether being burned at any given time and you can select different time frames and then there's a simulation of when the merge happens what will change to the supply oh wait oh this is fascinating because oh wait it on, is wait. fascinating i'm looking at it right now Oh yeah. So right now when I clicked simulate merge, it shows that the supply will decrease by 0.6% per year. So um, yeah. So I I'm pretty sure Justin created this and yeah, you can see all kinds of things. Like you can see which smart contracts are responsible for the biggest burns of ether. And it's been open C I think for quite a while. <laughs> 
People love, I mean, people love their non-fungible tokens. Um, <laughs> Those gas heavy non-fungible tokens. <laughs> what is, what is, what is, uh, what does Vitalik think about, about NFTs? I mean, I, like, I, I would assume he, he likes them, but I like, I, I don't know if he's, you know, changed his profile picture to an ape or a punk or whatever. <laughs> you know, this is not a question that I asked him. However, when we discussed that period of when the crypto kitties were launched on Ethereum. Yeah. He, you know, first of all, in his life, that was the first time any of his like non-crypto friends or family were interested in what was what he was doing with Ethereum. Like he suddenly yeah. had random family members asking him about crypto kitties. So he was sort of pleased that, you know, there was kind of like something that was actually getting people's attention. Um, but he was also really dismayed because it was completely clogging the blockchain at that time. Yep. And so he would just kind of like wake up and like look at how many transactions there had been in the past 24 hours and just be like, oh my gosh, because, you know, it just wasn't up uh, to the task. And um, obviously still, you know, there's only still, I think like 15 seconds, or sorry, 15 transactions a second on Ethereum. <laughs> So, um, you know, definitely, definitely has scaling issues and, um, yeah, we'll see how their attempts to overcome those will pan out. Well, I mean, that's one of the biggest questions in global finance, I think is, is <laughs> what, what ends up happening with, with gas transactions and fees. Somehow um, I don't think the rest of global finance would agree that that's one of the biggest questions. I don't, I don't think they, I don't think they would either, but I think they're wrong. <laughs> like, uh, like, uh, a, a, working smart contract platform that can handle transactions instantaneously and for essentially free would um i mean it, it would do it would do a lot especially for um the unbanked right you know i mean we haven't we haven't said um bank the unbanked yet on the show so we're missing like crypto bingo but i do think i do think it is a huge question in global finance but i did finally want to get here which is the dow hack uh we don't need to spoil the identity of the hacker by the book, everyone. It's in the it's in the description. Make sure you do it. But I I do want to get into the code is law versus you know this is clearly better for everyone, right? So so when the DAO hack happened, and you can give um, you can give some background on that because you'll do a better job explaining it than I will. But obviously the the book gets really in depth and it warrants a discussion here. So for someone who I mean a lot of the people who are new to crypto, right? A lot of the people who got onboarded, you know they're they're buying. NFTs, you know, they're on Top Shot, whatever they buy in during the the pump in in 2020, they would have no idea what what this hack was, what Ethereum Classic is, and why it's so important both then and and now. Yeah, well, they would be missing out on what I believe is the most important and biggest event in Ethereum's history. Hundred percent. It was yeah the only existential crisis for Ethereum. And this all happened when Ethereum wasn't even a year old. And essentially, it was kind of the first real decentralized application that got a lot of people's attention on Ethereum. And at that time, you know, like I said, since it wasn't a year old, there it was not like the Ethereum of today, when you have DAOs and DeFi and NFTs and just all these things that are kind of competing for people's attention. People were very excited about Ethereum's promise, but you know, like I said, there was kind of nothing else really happening on Ethereum. So when the DAO got started, and it was called the DAO, even though um, DAO is a generic term, and that stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And essentially, this group of people had this idea to create 
kind of like an internet of things mash up with Ethereum, where essentially they would have a device and it was a lock and the lock would open up when you did uh, an Ethereum transaction to, to open it. So for instance, a lock to an Airbnb would open with an Ethereum transaction or um, a lock to a bike if you're doing like bike sharing or whatever it might be. And um, their thinking was, well, you know, we could do VC funding, but that's sort of like the old way. That's, you know, that's not really the decentralized way. And yeah. so their thought was, hey, why don't we build a DAO? And the DAO, the, the DAO token holders can vote on whether or not we should get funding. And so their idea was they were going to create this DAO, which was sort of this decentralized venture fund. And then they would submit a proposal to the DAO and hope to get paid via the DAO. So what essentially happened was the DAO got so much interest that it actually became the most crowdfunded project in history, even compared to, you know, just like non-crypto things, which is amazing because, you know, they were collecting, yeah, they were collecting ether. And this was at a time when people like barely anybody in the world knew how to even transact in crypto. So, I mean, that was just incredible. Um, However, a short time later, so it was, so actually like pretty much even during the crowd sale and then shortly thereafter, there was a lot of talk about all these flaws in the DAO. Like people were realizing like, oh, it's actually not that easy to get your money out. Um, even though it had been advertised that it was easy to take your money out. And people were also realizing like, oh, you know, the way this is set up, people will be incentivized to vote yes more than no, even if they really aren't it's in support of a project and, you know, whatever. So there were these ideas like, okay, we probably need to improve this. But the only way they could have improved it was to have gotten the token holders to vote for an upgrade. <laughs> and there just was not the kind of tooling that we have today, like with, you know, yeah. snapshot and yeah, all these different things that people use when they vote in DAOs. So um, anyway, while people were sort of bickering around all this, uh, what ended up happening was that a few weeks after the crowd sale finished, somebody hacked the DAO and stole 31% of the Ether in the DAO. And it was 3.64 million Ether, which in today's dollar value is kind of like close to $10 billion. So, I mean, it was just a huge, huge, huge hack. And because the DAO had actually garnered about 15% of all Ether at the time, but it was definitely far and away, like the biggest holder of Ether, that meant that this single hacker had 5% of all ETH. And, you know, even at that point, they kind of knew they were going to move to proof of stake. So that definitely was a problem. So this just created um, a month of hand-wringing and, um, you know, kind of like just bickering. And I mean, the, the community really like was nearly torn apart. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I say that this occurred over a month is because, um, the rules of the DAO trapped the hackers, um, illicit, uh, funds, uh, in, in a so-called child DAO for a month. And so that was the window um, of time in which they had to try to do something to rescue that money, or sorry, to rescue the remaining money and maybe recover the hacked money. And so um, the method that they decided to go with, uh, mainly due to a process of elimination because they realized that none of the others would really work, was that they needed to, to do a hard fork of Ethereum and 
at the time of the hard fork, it looked like they succeeded. And, uh, you know, meaning that people all moved over to the new chain and the hack basically got erased and anybody who had DAO tokens could now turn them in in order to get Ether back. However, a few days later, uh, an exchange listed the coins of the original chain, which basically revived the old chain because, you know, then everybody who had uh, Ether now all of a sudden had ETC that they could convert into real money. And so, um, yeah, that is how Ethereum Classic came alive. And the hack was such a mystery for years. And I think people had basically given up on trying to figure out who had done it, um, except for I like I definitely one other journalist had tried to pursue it. Um, but yeah, very late in the process of working my book, my sources and I did figure out who it was. And honestly, it was amazing launching my book and announcing that my sources and I figured out who the job attacker was because, um, you know, it just, I don't know, it just was amazing. Like people were tweeting at me that I was the goat and um, it was <laughs> nothing's <laughs> better than that. Yeah. And it's so funny because, you know, well, maybe you don't, but normally crypto people don't have complimentary things to say to journalists. So, um, you know, no, that was really sweet. journalists, podcast hosts. Uh, no, <laughs> no. I mean, just in general, it's a, it's a very toxic place. So having people excited about, about your book and about just, I mean, just about your presence in general is, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it ended up being awesome and nobody has, you know, been like, you were wrong. <laughs> um, so I think that they recognize the evidence is extremely strong and, um, not only the evidence I obtained to get the identity, but then when I filled in the story, like going backwards to the time of the DAO hack, then everything made sense because this person was super into the DAO. They had been examining the code. They'd been working on submitting a proposal to the DAO to get funding from the DAO. They had identified some problems that they saw in the DAO and they'd reach out to the creators about those problems. They were writing blog posts about those problems. One of those problems is essentially the problem that made Ethereum realize like, oh, the only way we're going to resolve this is if we hard fork. And so there were just so many things. And then after the hack, they were tweeting things that were definitely kind of like anti-hard fork and pro, um, you know, keeping the hack. So the just like kind of like everything sort of fit once you, once I had that name. So yeah, it, it was pretty awesome to launch that way. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really grateful also to Chainalysis because they did a really key step, step, which was that this person had converted their Ethereum classic coins into Bitcoin and uh, um, then used a mixer in Bitcoin. They had used Wasabi wallet and had done a coin join on those coins, which mixed their coins with uh, like a hundred or more other people's coins. And um, that obscures the trail. And so Chainalysis uh, demixed those coins. And that was a crucial step to figuring out the identity. So yeah, all in all, it was, it was a really um, great scoop. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to find better viral marketing than I solved one of the biggest mysteries in, in cryptocurrency history. I mean, it's it's uh, it's right up there with like I I know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. It's like <laughs> it's like maybe not maybe not quite as good, but still pretty amazing. So I would encourage everyone if you want to know who the DAO hacker is, buy the book. Uh, I I do want to get you out here on this since you are a journalist with uh, experience in traditional markets and just covering the world of, of finance in general. Of course, last week we had uh, our, our first cryptocurrency executive order, more, more attention 
on crypto than ever before from from Washington DC. Uh, unfortunately, some of it bad, some of it good, some of it in between. Um, what do you what do you see playing out, or just what even what even do you think Washington in general thinks about cryptocurrency right now? Well, I think they recognize it's very important and it's here to stay. And so they need to have a coherent strategy for addressing it because so far it's been very ad hoc and even, you know, but from administration to administration, there are kind of differences. And yeah, I I basically think that it's actually really positive. You know, I feel like so much of what I've heard from different entrepreneurs in crypto over the last few years is that they're really frustrated that there is a lack of clarity around mm-hmm. how crypto will be regulated. And so a number of them, you know, frankly, actually left the US because they didn't want to put themselves at risk. And, you know, I, I have to say, as an American, I think, you know, I find that unfortunate because. I mean, we've seen how having Silicon Valley and the whole internet revolution here in the US has benefited the US. And so if the government were to go a different way and they were to do things that would cause a lot of crypto entrepreneurs to leave the US, then basically other places, um, places other than the US would be benefiting from what this technology brings about. And I, you know, just as an American, not as a journalist, like obviously as a journalist, I would just cover that story. And and frankly, that would be a good story because then it's sort of like, you know, the underdog kind of wins or whatever. But as an American, you know, I, I think I would be disappointed and I would think that that wasn't really a smart move by the government. Um, but I, the other thing I want to say about the executive order is that it's sort of kind of balanced between looking at the risks and then looking at the opportunities. Um, at least when you kind of look at the main, the six main points that they're going to focus on. And so in that regard, I, I feel like, you know, there's kind of um, a balanced way of approaching it. However, there was uh, a tweet by Brian Quintens, who's a former CFTC commissioner, and he noted that he did a search of the words in the in the executive order and the word risk shows up 47 times <laughs> and like the, the word opportunity shows up I forget like 12 or something or and the word benefit is like six and you know he just he he was like oh I feel like it's too balanced or too too um imbalanced you know against kind of uh the potential for for um, good to come out of this technology. So I thought that that was an interesting way of looking at it. And, and just funny because, you know, he was part of the government until a few months ago. So, um, you know, I guess, how did they say that the call is coming from inside the house, uh, or just outside. (laughs) Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I had a great time chatting. I, I think the book is amazing. I encourage everyone to buy it. Um, of course, everyone needs to listen to the Unchained podcast. Everyone needs to read the Cryptopians and uh, any anything else, any other directions that you would like to send people? What else can they be looking for? Do you, are you already working on another book? Uh, kind, well, I can't, I can't really say. I can't. I'll, when, when I'm ready to announce, I'll, I'll announce. So. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> so, oh, and, and so to that end, follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. There we go. (laughs) Laura Shin, everyone, the Unchained podcast, the Cryptopians, idealism, greed, lies in the making of the first big cryptocurrency craze, not trades. Thank you very much for your time. And everyone, we will be back next week. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. 
Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. 